Welcome to the Manulife Exchange, an exclusive podcast created for you, our advisors, to take stock of the latest insights, news, and solutions that are driving our industry forward. We're on a mission to make decisions easier and lives better, and we believe in the power of your advice. So get ready to examine, redefine, and simplify insurance. Get ready to rethink insurance. Manulife's tax and estate planning team are a group of accountants and lawyers supporting advisors with complex cases using life insurance solutions. In our episodes, we bring real-life experience to you that we hope will inspire you to identify similar situations and explore insurance solutions. I'm Desiree D'Souza, Assistant Vice President for Western Ontario, the Prairies, and Atlantic Canada. And this is my colleague, Hamel Balsara, Assistant Vice President, GTA, and Eastern Ontario. Hey, Desiree. Good to be here today. Nice to have you, Hamel. I'm looking forward to today's episode. We'll be discussing insurance opportunities for business succession and sale of business transactions, a particularly favorite topic for Hamel. So Hamel, you've been in this role a long time. In your experience, can you describe a situation that is a standout example of the importance of life insurance in the context of selling a business? Absolutely. Thanks, Desiree. And before we actually jump into that situation, I, I just wanted to highlight for the audience today that, you know, this is an area that I'm extremely passionate about. Throughout my entire career, you know, when I was in public practice and also at Manulife, sale planning and life insurance just seemed to be coming up all the time. And, you know, one of, one of the best examples of this was when I was out with an advisor, Jen. And basically what happened in that situation was one where I was talking to Jen, you know, and, and we were out for lunch and, and, and she indicated to me, like, look, I've got a really big case. You know, I want to do a wealth transfer strategy where my client buys policies on the children's lives. So eventually they could transfer those policies to the children on a tax deferred basis in the future. And I was just like, whoa, 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 let's back up a little bit. You said your client came into money. Can you talk to me about that? And Jen ultimately said, look, my client sold their business. And I was like, okay. And how much did they sell their business for? And it was oodles and oodles of money. So then what happened was, was, was I ended up, you know, asking Jen, like, look, Who's the accounting firm that works with this client? And then basically Jen told me, and it was like one of the big accounting firms that, that's in the country. And I go, for sure. Ultimately, this client is getting transaction advice you know, from this accounting firm. And what I explained to Jen next is, is, look, usually when big accounting firms are involved with sale transactions, what ends up happening is, is anywhere between one half to a third of the money ends up in the client's hands personally. And then what happens is the remaining one half to two thirds ends up in a corporation. And as you can appreciate, when you have money in a corporation, all that is is tax deferral. But by doing the transaction this way, what happens is, is the client's tax rate could be as low as single digits by virtue of doing the transaction in, in, in that manner. What ended up happening was for the deferral piece, as you could appreciate, that's just that, tax deferral. It's not tax elimination. Ultimately, when you pay a dividend out 
to pull that money out of that corporation, what's going to end up happening is, is we're going to be subject to dividend rates. And what ends up happening is, is effectively, because of those dividend rates, there's going to be taxes owing. So one of the things I, I then explained to Jen was, look, corporate-owned insurance can be very, very helpful in this situation because at the end of the day, we could use those tax-deferred dollars to fund this policy. We can get tax-deferred growth within the policy. And then what happens next is ultimately the death benefit will be paid into the corporation. And then we create my magical three letters, CDA, capital dividend account, which is basically for the death benefit minus the ACB of the policy. And basically what we're able to do is we're able to strip out the money from the corporation effectively tax-free. The only catch is obviously the insured has to pass away. So my point with this is one where, you know, basically corporate-owned life insurance can take the deferral that was created by the accountant's tax plan and basically make it permanent through the use of life insurance and CDA creation. The only catch is obviously the insured has to pass away. So my point with this was, was you know, when I explained that to Jen, it felt like the light bulb went off. And one, one thing that Jen really felt was a need to help out the client, A, understand this, but also B, in terms of, you know, getting them the messaging to the client and, and their accountant. And, and what ended up happening was, is we ended up having a conversation with the accountant and the accountant ultimately was like, yeah, <laughs> this is, makes a lot of sense. This is like a no brainer. And what ended up happening next was, was in a nutshell, the client was helped out in a big way. And in addition to that, Jen was able to land one of the largest cases of her career. And what made this even more special was, was the fact that Jen wasn't just like a regular advisor. Jen was a very, very, very successful advisor too. And for this to be one of her, her biggest deals, uh, it meant a lot to her. And then the other thing was, was and, and this is the most important thing, was the client got the, the best result possible for them. And I think that's the most important thing with sale planning and life insurances is we're helping our clients become way more tax efficient, especially where that money isn't needed during their lifetime. And that was the case in this scenario. And basically we were able to help out the, the client in a very, very nice way. So yeah, thanks for asking that question, Desiree. Yeah, thanks, Hamel. Like, that's a really interesting situation because when, and from from our listeners here who are, you know, mostly insurance advisors, when you're dealing with your clients and really having an understanding of your clients, understanding their business and understanding a sale of business transaction is kind of fundamental here. And Hamel, you may or may not agree with me. You're an accountant. You've worked as an accountant for a number of years. I'm a lawyer. I've worked as a lawyer for a number of years, both of us prior to Manulife, of course. But in these sales of business transactions, the lawyers and accountants who work on these deals don't necessarily address the question of what to do with these post-sale funds once the sale is completed. And that's really where insurance advisors can step in and say, look, you know, your accountants and lawyers have done a great job with tax effective planning for the sale. But really here, our insurance advisors can step in and say, why don't we help our clients with making these funds or using these funds in the most efficient way possible for post-sale investments and for business succession planning? So there really is a value here and an opportunity for our advisors to work with our clients 
other professionals to really to make these transactions as beneficial as possible and as efficient as possible from a tax perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think that, that you nailed the, the, the point right on the head in terms of this is 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 really that fundamental issue, right? Where where advisors really can help figure out where the proceeds go. Yeah. But if we kind of take a step backwards, now we, we, we need to kind of understand where these proceeds ultimately land, right? And 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 typically when it comes to the sale of a business, there's traditionally two ways of doing it. There's there's obviously and there's a third way, which is the more advanced planning, which is like the hybrid planning. But basically the, the first way of selling is 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 effectively you do a share sale, right? And with a share sale, what ends up happening next is is effectively as a seller. You end up with cash in your jeans, cash in your hands, and you basically pay the tax and you you walk away. And the benefit of that is, you know, you've got personal cash. You don't have to worry about any deferral. You don't have to worry about anything. And, and you walk away with capital gains rates. The other thing is, is for smaller transactions. So this is, you know, transactions of like, you know, a few million dollars. Selling shares is almost like a potentially an ideal way of selling a business because especially where the shares of that business qualify for the lifetime capital gains exemption, what ends up happening is, is you can shelter part or all of that gain with the lifetime capital gains exemption. And with the lifetime capital gains exemption, as you can appreciate, there's very specific tests, you know, to, to meet that. You know, the first thing is, is 24 months prior to any sale, you have to have at least 50% or more of the assets being used in the active business of Canada. And at the time of sale, you have to have, you know, 90% or more of the fair market value of the assets being used in an active business of Canada. But at the end of the day, what ends up happening is where you're able to unlock the lifetime capital gains exemption, you could walk away with potentially lower no tax. And sometimes there's structures that are put in place where clients ultimately can multiply that lifetime capital gains exemption. Sometimes you see direct ownership by uh, shareholders, family members. Sometimes you see a, a family trust being used. But what's good about that is potentially there's the ability to unlock multiple lifetime capital gains exemption. And the other piece of good news is, is TOSI, tax on split income, wouldn't apply to such a sale. The only catch is obviously the, the person who does use that lifetime capital gains exemption has to keep that money. There was a case called the LaPlante case that was basically, basically confirmed that result. So anyways, long story short, share sales good, especially for, for smaller transactions, walk away with capital gains rates and potentially the ability to unlock the lifetime capital gains exemption. The only little curveball when working with the lifetime capital gains exemption as well in order, in addition to qualifying, is obviously there may be some alternative minimum tax that may be owing as well. So that could be a little bit of a complication. The other way of, of, of skinning the cat is just basically selling assets. And when you sell assets, as you can appreciate, that in a corporation, what ends up happening is, is there's there, there can be some capital gains. There may be some recapture to the extent that they're capital assets. And what ends up happening is, is the recapture is obviously treated as active business income. The capital gains get that one half income inclusion. And ultimately, you also, because there's a non-taxable portion of the capital gain, you get some CDA created along the way. So what ends up happening is you end up with some money that you can strip out tax-free, but then there'll be other retained earnings that you ultimately strip out, you know, they'll be taxable. So generally speaking, when it comes to sales of businesses, you know, sellers prefer to sell shares. The, the buyers prefer to buy assets, A, because 
you know, you don't have the liability concerns when you're a buyer buying assets. And then B, the other consideration is you're able to get a stepped up basis on the underlying assets and potentially claim capital cost allowance too. So it ends up creating a very, very favorable result if, if you're a buyer purchasing you know, assets. And on the flip side, as a seller selling shares, you, you get the favorable result because you, you get capital gains and you get the potential to unlock your lifetime capital gains exemption. And then really there's a third tranche of transactions, which are kind of like hybrid transactions, which ultimately result in, you know, th there can be different variations of this planning. Some may be surplus strips. A surplus strip is basically where we strip out excess retained earnings to a holding company prior to sale to the extent that we have safe income. The reason why we want to do it to the extent that we have safe income is a 55-2 would recharacterize any additional dividends uh, beyond that to a capital gain. So what we want to do is we want to have any safe income being paid up to a holding company. Usually with these safe income strips, what happens is, is when those those retained earnings are stripped up, we, we end up getting that money tax-free in that holding company. In addition to that, there's other variations. One's called an 84.1 plan. Uh, there, there's also something called non-CCPC planning, uh, which was shut down as part of the budget, but basically resulted in a whole bunch of tax deferral. And basically what's happening is, is these are known now as substantive CCPCs as per the Income Tax Act. But in a nutshell, what happens with substantive CCPCs is, is they're not retroactively taxing the previous retained earnings. So there can still be opportunities to work with that money. Hey, Desiree, one thing I realized, I talked a lot about all of these different sale transactions. And one of the things I realized is, is I didn't really delve into some of the insurance opportunities around those transactions. Desiree, do you want to maybe talk about those a little bit more? Absolutely, Hamel. And that's really where our advisors come in here is you know, we we can talk about the sales and and really as an insurance advisor, understanding the sale is just one part of it. Where your expertise come in here is understanding how insurance can be used and leveraged within these sale transactions to, to utilize those post-sale proceeds. Now, the first example, Hamel, that you spoke about is a share sale. So with a share sale, the proceeds of the sale generally end up in the hands of the client. There's no further taxes on it. It's just kind of sitting there in a bank account or in, you know, a box under their bed or whatever, but really being able to utilize those proceeds in a way that makes sense is where our insurance advisors can really shine and bring value to their clients. And the first thing to really know is what are your clients' intended uses for these proceeds? Are they looking to reinvest in a new business? Are they looking to just spend it and buy a Lamborghini? Are they looking to set up a plan for their kids or their grandkids or the beneficiaries of their estate? And that's where insurance planning can come in to, to either utilize those proceeds that may be established in a new business to perhaps purchase a policy in a new business. I know there is the IFA strategy is, is a very popular one when we're looking at leveraging a policy for reinvestment. Now, the second example, Hamel, that you spoke about was an asset sale. And now with the asset sale, that really does provide an opportunity for corporate-owned life insurance, where there's these trapped proceeds of the sale that are sitting in a corporation. 
And knowing what your clients want to do with those proceeds is the key to to providing a solution and talking about an insurance solution that really works for them. And I know I kind of glossed over the share sale, but I'm going to come back to that in a second. So with an asset sale, when you purchase corporate-owned life insurance, first of all, you're utilizing these funds that may not really have a plan. If your clients are looking to reinvest, they could also you know, almost have their cake and eat it too if they're looking to reinvest in a new business or if they're looking to utilize those proceeds. Um, because, you know, we have the tax deferred growth that the life insurance policies offer, as well as, Hamill, you mentioned the CDA credit, which is really one of the most valuable aspects of these insurance policies when held inside of a corporation. So for our advisors, understanding what your clients are looking to do with those post-sale proceeds is really fundamental to structuring where these insurance policies should be held. And it's not that there is no benefit to holding them personally because you still get the proceeds of a life insurance policy, you get protection from creditors, you bypass probate, you would bypass any estate taxes that may otherwise be incurred when you're talking about holding personal investments versus an insurance policy. Um, So no matter which way you slice it, regardless of whether a business is sold by a share sale or an asset sale, there is an insurance opportunity and That's where you can really leverage your expertise and knowledge of the product. So Hummel, you know, we've we've spoken about these share sales and these asset sales, and really at the the base of it is being able to communicate well with your clients, understanding your clients' needs, understanding the transactions, and asking the question of what their clients are looking to do with these proceeds. And you, you touched a little bit about the CCPC and non-CCPC planning. And although this has been shut down by the budget, we understand that there are still opportunities within these structures that were contemplated previously. And maybe you can speak a little bit more to that. Yeah. So, so I mean, one of the interesting structures that was used in recent years, especially uh, as part of sale transactions, was the use of a non-CCPC. And, you know, some of you may have heard about this, some of you may not have, but the gist of it is, is what was interesting about these entities is they were taxed on investment income at 26.5% in Ontario, which is the active business rate, rather than 50.17, which is the investment income tax rate. So basically, long story short, through some legal magic, uh, entities were incorporated in non treaty jurisdictions, but they were continued in Canada as, you know, regular uh, Canadian taxpayer corporations. But basically the only thing non-treaty about them was was the fact that, or for non-CCPC about them was the fact that they were incorporated in a foreign jurisdiction. And what ended up happening with these entities was, you know, they were used as part of the sale planning process and they benefited from lower tax rates and more tax deferral. As you alluded to, Desiree, in the budget, they've basically indicated that these substantive CCPCs, which is a terminology that CRA uses, is basically you know going to be sh- uh, shut down in the sense of now any go forward investment income is going to be taxes investment income in these entities rather than active business income. And what's what's interesting about that is 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 there isn't any retroactive taxation of previous retained earnings. So anyways, long story short, 
what we're going to see is, is, you know, even if you've got a client who's got one of these non-CCPC structures in place and they use it as part of a sale plan, they're probably, you know, going to still have that trap surplus on hand. And ultimately, corporate-owned life insurance can still benefit these entities. And I'm still seeing transactions come through with clients who've engaged in this type of planning where, where they're looking at life insurance as a way to ultimately benefit from CDA and ultimately recharacterize those retained earnings into tax-free capital dividends. So anyways, in a nutshell, you know, th this is one of those things where, you know, you shouldn't shy away from looking at these non-CCPC entities. The other thing is from a practical lens, tax professionals are probably going to recontinue these entities back in Canada just because of like, you know, there's going to be additional reporting required. But anyways, you shouldn't shy away from these entities um, going forward, just from a life, helping out clients from a life insurance perspective, especially where they've used these entities as part of a sale plan in the past prior to the budget. So, so, so Hummel, just so I understand you, when these non-CCPCs were implemented as part of a sales strategy, essentially, you know, the, the funds ended up sitting in these non-CCPCs, which have now been recharacterized as substantive CCPCs and any investment income that was previously prior to this year's budget taxed at a lower tax rate is now subject to the same investment tax rate. So essentially what we have, if I understand correctly, is the all of the tax treatment of a CCPC with none of really the benefit. So as having a life insurance policy in a non-CCPC would really be ideal for, you know, these potential clients, because there's first of all, the, the deferred tax, as well as the CDA credit, as you mentioned, that would allow those funds to be distributed without being subject to the dividend tax rate. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. If, if they're planning on continuing to own it in that type of structure, right? The, the, the one thing is, is because of the reporting requirements that under the mandatory disclosure rules or notifiable transaction rules, this is one of those things where they may continue these just as regular from a legal perspective as back as Canadian entities rather than being incorporated in those jurisdictions. That's up for debate. But anyways, yeah. I don't want to make this a, a <laughs> CPC, non-CCPC discussion. But basically, the gist of it is, is there's going to be a whack of cash there. CDA, life insurance planning still works in these entities. The other thing that I wanted to just quickly highlight as well is, is regardless of whether the client uses one of these advanced strategies like the 84.1 plan or the the uh, surplus strip or you know even one of these uh, substantive slash non-CCPC structures, the gist of it is, is there's a bunch of money left behind in a corporation. And what's interesting is, is I wanted to just share a story from my days in, in public practice and, and really when I was in public practice, I, I used to work with one of the the big four accounting firms, and I used to work closely with uh, with with somebody who was involved with these with these transactions. And what ended up happening, just from my discussions with him over the years, is is like you know we you know as accountants, and and like Desiree mentioned at the beginning, was as accountants we came in, we helped the client maximize cash in their ecosystem, right? So basically, you know, we, we were able to get their tax rates down to very, very low levels by virtue of taking advantage of tax deferral through a corporation. And one of the things that, you know, I, I, from talking to this partner, one of the things he said was, was like, look, 
Like, you know, as accountants, we can help them get that cash where it needs to be. But at the end of the day, it's ultimately life insurance, especially if they're not going to touch that money, that's going to help these clients, you know, take that deferral that we create as accountants and make it permanent through the use of life insurance. Uh, so, so anyways, my point with all of this is, is it's one of those things where throughout my entire career, I have seen clients being helped with the use of life insurance especially in their corporations after the exit of a business. And my point with this is, is especially when the larger firms are involved with these transactions, these deals are typically, you know, really big insurance opportunities as well uh, for, for, for a client. And where, where I want to leave it off in terms of my thoughts on this is, is, you know, in a nutshell, if you hear client has sold their business Bells and whistles should be going off in your head in terms of helping them out from an insurance perspective. You know, Desiree, we walked you through a few different scenarios. You know, there could be money personally, there could be money in a corporation, but especially where we have money left in a corporation, this is where we can help the client out from CDA creation and ultimately taking the deferral created by the accountant's transactions and making it permanent through the use of life insurance. So like I said, Bells and whistles, sale of business, you should you should be really focused on helping that client out. So Hemel, thanks so much for sharing your insight on these topics today. I know it's something you're very passionate about, and for good reason. Our advisors can create a lot of value for their clients by discussing the opportunities using those after-sale proceeds um, when it comes to selling a business. And at the end of the day, our TREPS team here at Manulife, we're here to help our advisors help their clients. Yeah, no, thanks, Desiree. And, and it's been a pleasure being out here today talking about the subject matter that I'm really, really passionate about. The other thing I wanted to say is, you know, in the episode notes, there's a link to our tax topic that talks about business succession planning. It has a lot of what we talked about in there. In a nutshell, you know, help your clients out. This is very, very important stuff. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Manulife Exchange. We're driving the insurance industry to innovative solutions for our customers and the communities we serve are at the forefront of everything we do. Rethinking insurance is what we do. How about you? For more information on the future of insurance and for more episodes, please visit manulife.ca forward slash the Manulife Exchange. Thanks for tuning in. Copyright Manulife. This podcast, including case studies and support materials, is for general information purposes only and is not specific to any one individual or case. This podcast shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, tax, accounting, or other advice. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and are subject to change based on legislative, case law, market, and other conditions that may change during the course of recording and publishing this podcast. Support materials reference may be incomplete if viewed on their own and should be referenced within the context of the applicable podcast episode. Individuals should seek the advice of professionals with respect to this information and any action taken. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from the use of information in this podcast. The manufacturer's life insurance company, Manulife, is the issuer of Manulife insurance contracts. Manulife, Manulife and Stylized M Design, and Stylized M Design are trademarks of the manufacturer's life insurance company and are used by it and by its affiliates under license.